Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into, uh, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you, did, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. Would you all pray with me one more time? Father, I want to thank you again for your precious word. We ask and pray that as we sit here this morning, may we not let this hour go to waste. Uh, it took a lot of effort for us to wake up in the morning, get ready, drive here, come here to sit. We ask and pray there will be more than just uh, checking in for our attendance and our weekly service. It will be a life-changing moment through your precious word this morning. So we ask and pray that as we depend on your word, Speak to us clearly and speak only the words that you desire to speak. We thank you again. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you guys are taking notes, title of today's message is From the Greatest to the Least. From the Greatest to the Least. Uh, back in 2007, I believe all of you guys were alive then, right? Back in 2007, there was this movie came out that came out titled... Evan Almighty. Has anyone seen that movie before? Evan Almighty? Um, it supposedly got terrible reviews on Rotten Tomatoes as well as any other reviewers, uh, as the critics as well as the viewers themselves gave it really, really bad ratings. But I can honestly say that I learned a lot from this movie. I actually really enjoy it that I go back and watch it from time to time because there are quotes that I refer to back to, uh, over and over again. In the movie, if you, for those of you guys who haven't seen the movie yet, uh, the main character is Evan Baxter, played by Steve Carell, uh, who is running for Congress with this punchline that he wants to change the world. Then out of nowhere, God shows up, played by none other than Morgan Freeman, and he reminds Evan that if he really wants to change the world, he needs to build an ark. So Evan ends up building this ark, but what's really interesting is although he was referring to the physical ark itself, like the Noah's Ark, 
The movie also uses it as an acronym ARK for Act of Random Kindness. And one of their dialogues between Morgan Freeman and Steve Carell, or between God and Evan, God asks Evan, do you really want to know how to change the world? Do you really want to change the world? And he says, you change the world by one act of random kindness at a time. You change the world by one act of random kindness at a time. Looking at our passage today, although it has nothing to do with this movie, it reminded me that every act, every word, everything that we do here on earth to whoever and wherever actually matters a whole lot to God. That means whatever you say to the person sitting next to you, how you behave at school, how you behave at work, and especially how you behave at home with your siblings and your parents actually matters a whole lot to God. And at the heart of the message, Jesus is reminding his disciples, as well as all of us here gathered together, that how we treat others and how we love others is ultimately related, directly related to how we view and love Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. How we treat others and how we view others is directly related to how we treat and love Jesus Christ. Meaning, if you say you love Jesus Christ, but you treat others terribly, that doesn't really mean that you love Jesus Christ. Similarly, if you love others as best as you can, yet you have no, you don't care to love Jesus Christ, then you're not really loving people. You're actually just trying to use them to get what you want. So let's talk about that in today's passage. Leading up to today's passage, Jesus has been continually reminding his disciples over and over again regarding his return regarding the end times, regarding the apocalypse, and how they ought to prepare for his return. Through the parable of the ten virgins in the beginning of chapter 25, Jesus calls the church to actively be on watch for his return. And then, through the parable of the talents, Jesus calls upon the church to faithfully wait for his return as they work diligently in their callings. Similarly for us, Jesus is calling us to be watchful, rather than being distracted, rather than being lazy, to be actively watchful for his return. Also, Jesus is reminding us to faithfully wait for his return as we are working diligently in our callings. We are called in three different areas, in our family, in our work or school, if you're a student, in our church. How are you faithfully and diligently working as you wait for his return? In today's passage... At the apex of this discourse, or at the climax, Jesus explains to us what it's going to look like. Exactly what's going to happen and what it's going to look like as the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, in glory comes to gather everyone in this world. Not just the Jews, not just the Israelites, but everyone in this world to judge accordingly. To those who are prepared for his return, to those who have been faithful, to those who have been ready Jesus reminds them that there will be salvation and eternal life. But to those who are unprepared, to those who are not yet ready, to those who are too preoccupied with other things in life, Jesus clearly reminds us that they will be met with condemnation and eternal punishment. So then how do we know? How do we know if we are preparing correctly for his return? Or how can we better prepare for his return? Because as a matter of fact, Jesus makes it very clear from chapter 24 and chapter 25 of the book of Matthew that he's coming back, that he will return. 
before we answer those questions, the first thing that we need to meditate upon or chew on is the fact that Jesus is going to return, that Christ will return, this assurance of his return. So first, as he returns, we see that he will come in glory. Let's read verse 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. From verses 31 to 33, we see that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come back. He will return. It's not that there's a chance that he might come back. It's not, that, it's not a maybe, but throughout Scripture, Jesus emphasizes again and again and again regarding the assurance of his return. Meaning, whether you like it or not, Jesus is coming back. Jesus doesn't just mention this right here, but this is a theme that he's been emphasizing all throughout his ministry, as well as we see this in the Old Testament. When you look at Daniel chapter 7, we see a very similar use of words and phrases. Read this for us. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, referring to Jesus Christ. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus returns, he will come in glory. Now this word glory, we don't really use this word that often, do we? Glory. This word glory could also mean radiance or brightness or splendor. From the title, the Son of Man, which means the divine king, to all the angels, not some, but he's bringing all the angels when he comes. We don't know how many, but he's bringing every one of them. And then... As he returns in, uh, with his glorious throne, all the nations are gathered. Meaning, yes, even Koreans, even Chinese, even Africans, even Europeans. Everyone in this world will gather together at the foot of the cross. And every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is indeed the Lord. It will be unlike his first coming. If you remember the Christmas story, when Jesus came he, in the beginning... He first came incarnate as a baby boy born in a manger in Jerusalem. A very humble beginning. But when he returns, it will be unlike his first. It will be the greatest and the brightest headline in the history of headlines and the most public event of all time. When he returns in glory, we also we see that not a single person will, um, not a single person will be able to. Uh, will go unnoticed, meaning everyone will know in this world that Jesus, indeed, will, is returning. So we see in the beginning that when he comes, he will become in glory, but also he will come to judge. He will come to judge. Jesus is the only true judge of, the, judge of this world, and as he returns, he, he comes to judge. He will come to judge. Now, we don't really like that word, do we? Judge or Judgment. But for those who have been actively preparing themselves by living obedient lives, Jesus' glorious return is actually good news. Jesus coming to judge is actually good news for us because if you have been faithful, if you have been ready for his return, then you will be judged accordingly. 
and you will inherit the kingdom of God, and you will be receiving eternal life. However, if you have been living in a disobedient life, unprepared, then the word judge or judgment will be a very bad news. In verse 32, Jesus describes this judging as separating, as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And the reason, if you guys uh, are with us during communion time, the reason why we only ask the people who have been baptized to partake in the, the Lord's Supper is to remind us of the end times, to remind us of what is coming. Not to be exclusive, but to remind you, you, you still have a chance, you still have time to enter into the kingdom of God as you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So Jesus is saying to the ones who are prepared, to the ones who Jesus compares as sheep, eternal life. But to the ones who are unprepared, to the ones that Jesus compares as to goat, eternal damnation, eternal suffering and punishment. Now this is not the only time Jesus mentions this sifting or filtering. As he mentions throughout the book of Matthew, different comparisons such as the wheat versus the weeds. Or in the parable of the net, the good fish from the bad fish. Or just last week, or uh, last passage, uh, in the parable of the talents, the ones who have ten, uh, five and two talents, the faithful servants, versus the one who only received one talent. So then on what basis, we've got to ask, what basis, what measure is Jesus judging from? With what measure and principle is he separating the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous? Going back to the earlier question, how do we know if we are considered sheep or if we are considered goats? Look at the person sitting next to you. They might be a goat. They might be a sheep. We use the word goat in a very positive way this, uh, nowadays, but the Bible is saying you don't want to be a goat. So then how can we know? How can we better prepare for his return? Because we are reminded not only of his assurance of his return, but we are also reminded of the assurance of separation, the assurance of salvation as well as condemnation, the assurance of separating between those who are saved versus those who will be condemned. So let's look at assurance of salvation and condemnation. At a glance, when you look at today's passage, it seems as though Jesus' judgment, his measure, his principle uh, on, on judging is based on good works, on works righteousness. For the one who fed the hungry, for the one who welcomed strangers, clothed the naked, visited the sick and imprisoned, they are the ones who receive salvation and get to inherit the kingdom. But for the ones who refuse to do any good works, they will receive condemnation and eternal punishment. Just at a glance, it seems as though the Bible is telling us that in order for us to have eternal life, we need to do good works. However, we need to be careful not to make our faith legalistic. We need to be very careful not to make our faith a works-based righteousness. We, in, we who come from Eastern culture are so good at this, aren't we? To make everything about legalistic legalism, right? Uh, so then what is Jesus referring to in today's passage if he's not referring to legalism? If you look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it will help us to better understand. You don't have to turn with me there, but if you remember uh, when the Lord sent prophet Samuel on a search for a new king in Israel, he went to Jesse who had many sons. And as Jesse started bringing out his sons one by one, judging from their handsome good looks and judging from their physique, 
It seemed as though all of their sons, all of his sons were qualified to be the next king in Israel. However, this is what God reminds Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not, look on his, uh, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The one who Jesse didn't even want to present before Samuel because he was, in his mind, unqualified to be a king. David, out being a shepherd, Jesse, oh, Samuel, through God's provision, selects him to be the king. So then what's this got to do with today's passage? Going back to all the act of kindness and caring for the hungry, the stranger, the sick, Jesus is not actually, necess- Jesus is not actually looking for the righteous acts being done, but actually the motive behind those righteous acts. What Jesus cares a whole lot more is not about how much volunteer work you've done, but the heart behind even the smallest act of picking up trash from the ground, even the smallest act of you helping the homeless, even when it is going unnoticed. This is evident as both the righteous as well as the unrighteous were unaware of what they were doing or not doing. If the so-called righteous were calculating and trying to earn their ticket into heaven, then they would have never responded the way they did. If you look at verse 37, this is how they respond. They say, Lord, when do we see you hungry or feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? As we look deeper into the story, let's compare the similarities and the differences between the sheep and the goat. The righteous, as well as the unrighteous, were unaware. However, the righteous, even though they were unaware, they were still doing righteous acts because of the motive their heart was pure. But for the unrighteous, they they could care less. If it's got nothing to do with their ticket into heaven, they're not going to do it. So first, let's look into the similarities. The first thing that pops in today's passage is how both the righteous and the unrighteous were unaware. They were both unaware that how they treat others is directly related with how they treat Jesus. So I don't know how others view you if we were to interview everyone regarding how they think of you? Do you think how they treat you reminds you of Jesus Christ? How would they respond? So when they are confronted by Jesus on judgment seat, we see that both the righteous and the unrighteous were confused, or they were surprised. When when did we see you? When did we ever clothe you? When did we ever feed you? Both were surprised because both were actually professing Christians. They were both unaware that their actions or lack of actions towards the least of these were directed towards, directly towards Jesus Christ. The righteous were surprised because they didn't think that helping and serving and loving others was a big deal to Jesus Christ. But for the unrighteous, they were also surprised because they didn't think that their lack of actions or lack of love for others actually was such a big deal to Jesus Christ. The righteous were ignorant of their kindness, because they were exuding of their love for Christ, while the unrighteous were ignorant of their wickedness. They were both unaware, but the righteous was unaware of their kindness, but the unrighteous was unaware of their wickedness. It's easy for us to think that righteous is a believer, and the unrighteous is an unbeliever, but when we look closely in today's passage, we see that both were actually 
professing Christians. Both were claiming to be followers of Christ. We see this by the way they address him. In verse 37, or verse 38, as well as verse 44, they call him Lord. The only time, the only people that actually call Jesus as Lord are the people who follow Jesus Christ, are the people who call themselves Christians. If they are not followers of Christ, like the religious leaders, they would always call him teacher, good teacher or prophet. So first, the similarity is that both were unaware. Another similarity that we see is how both the righteous and the unrighteous were given the same exact opportunities and chances. If you look with me, Verse 35, they are met with people who are hungry and thirsty. Verse 44, same. They were met with people who were hungry and thirsty. Verse 35, they were met with someone who was a stranger, who was naked, who was sick, who was in prison. Similarly for the unrighteous, in verse 43, they also were met with opportunities to serve and love on the people who were hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, and in prison. Now, this isn't the entire list, but there's a reason why Matthew writes out almost verbatim the exchange between Jesus and the righteous and Jesus and the unrighteous. It is to show that Jesus doesn't show favoritism. Jesus doesn't show favoritism and give extra opportunities for the one to succeed while leaving the other in dust. Maybe some of you guys, you guys like to compare yourself to other believers and saying, why does she get so many different opportunities to serve? Why does she get all the fame and glory? What about me? Maybe it just seems like Jesus doesn't love me as much as He loves her. No, Jesus gives equal opportunity and chances for us to be used for his kingdom. So both were surprised and both were unaware and how they treat others is directly related with how they treat Jesus. And both were given the same opportunities to show the love of Christ. We see that one served faithfully while the other failed to do so. Which leads us to Ask the question, why? What was the difference between the two? What was the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous? In short, I would say the big difference is that one overflowed while the other overlooked. One overflowed while the other overlooked. While the righteous was overflowing with his love for Christ, the unrighteous was overlooking all the different different opportunities, all the different chances to profess their love for Christ. For the righteous, it wasn't that they were actively going out to search for those who were marginalized, who were in need, so they could help them. It wasn't simply compassion or pity. They weren't even aware that they were doing what they were doing. But because they were so in love with Jesus Christ, because they were so overflowing with the love of Christ, Their heart is so full with their love for Christ that it began to affect the people around them. Friends, have you ever been around someone like that? Have you ever been around someone who is so in love with Jesus that when you are just next to them, you can feel it? And you want what they have. By the way they speak, by the way they act, even just by the way they smile, when you're in love, if if you've ever been in love, everything changes, doesn't it? And you're not the only one who, even, you're not the only one who notices it. Even if you are unaware, everyone around you notices. This is a bit embarrassing, but it's kind of like when I first started courting or dating Julie. As we were getting ready for marriage, people around us kept on telling me how I changed for the better. I had no idea. I felt like I'm the same guy. But they told me how I'm a lot nicer. 
I thought I was always nice, but I guess not. They told me I was brighter, I was happier, without even me knowing. Right? When you're in love, everything changes. For the righteous, serving the needy and helping the least seemed automatic for them because they were so in love with Jesus Christ. For the righteous, serving the needy, loving on others was second thought. It was automatic because they were so in love with Jesus Christ. The question I want to ask us this morning is, friends, how about us? How do we love on others? Is it calculated? Is it selective on who we love, who we serve, how we love, how we serve? If I were to go around and investigate asking all of your coworkers, asking your friends at school and your family, what would they say about you regarding the way you show your love for Christ to them? Are we like the righteous that cannot contain the love of Christ that it exudes out of you to affect the people around you? Or are we perhaps like the unrighteous that overlooks every chance, that overlooks every opportunity that Jesus sends their way because they lack love not only for the people, but ultimately love for Christ? When the righteous overflows with love, the unrighteous overlooks perhaps because they're too busy perhaps because they're too preoccupied with more important things in life. But ultimately, it's related to your lack of love for Jesus Christ. If you have a hard time loving others, at the end of the day, you can make as many excuses as possible. They're just, lot, they're just not lovable. You just don't know my parents. You just don't know my sibling. You just don't know the situation that I'm in. Jesus Christ exemplified the greatest love by loving on the most unlovable people, that's us. And he's asking us to do the same, to be Christ-like. So even when they do appear to be serving, when they appear to be helping with all the different righteous acts for the unrighteous, without love, it can only go so far. Right? Have you ever tried to fake it before? Right? Yeah, I'll serve. I love serving. I love serving. And maybe a week goes by, a month goes by, a year goes by, and you're like, okay, I can't do this anymore. You burn out. Why? Because you're not overflowing. You're not serving because you're overflowing. You're serving out of obligation. You're serving because you feel like there's no one else serving. Well, my advice to you is don't just quit because you feel like, Pastor Gunn, I heard your sermon today. I feel like I should stop serving because I'm not overflowing. Well, the best option is for you not to quit but to keep on serving but ask God to give you a heart that overflows with love for Christ. Isn't this what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 13, 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Read that one more time. If I, am a, if I speak in the tongues of men and, the, and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That means... Even if you speak in the most elaborate, in the most elegant way to uplift others, to encourage others, to, uh, to uh, compliment others, if it's not love, if you're not doing it with love, you're just making loud noises with no purpose. You're just making loud noises that is annoying. You're just making loud noises with no impact. Perhaps some of us were really good at causing a scene. We're really good at making loud noises to make sure everyone notices what you are doing in this world. 
But remember, God looks at the heart. And in your heart, when God looks at your heart, it's empty. It's running dry. And if there is no love for Christ that is motivating all of your actions, then it is nothing but just loud noises, loud actions with no impact. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are we overflowing with the love of Christ? Or are we overlooking the chances and the opportunities to show the love of Christ because our love for Jesus is running dry? Just an encouragement for some of you guys who feel unrighteous, who feel as though that you resonate with the one who feel empty, you resonate with the people who are overlooking every opportunity, I would say, run to Jesus now. Come to Jesus right now. Go to Jesus now if you have, uh, if, if you have to, because he, uh, he has never turned his back on you, no matter how many times you've turned your back on him. And his love for you is limitless. His love for, his love for you is infinite. We cannot serve others without first being served by Jesus. So let's come to the foot of the cross this morning and be reminded of how he first loved us. Be reminded of how he first served us by dying on the cross so that we may experience his love, be transformed by his love, and to transform this world. You want to change this world? You need to first and foremost be changed by Christ. Even through this passage, although it might seem harsh, I believe it's an extension of his grace towards us. God's reminder of judgment coming. It's an extension of his grace towards us, saying it's not too late. On judgment day, it, is too, it will be too late. Reminding us that there will be a day on judgment day where there will be no more second chances. <clears throat> Give me one more, just one more chance. No more. But until then... He's reminding us even through today's sermon. He's reminding us through our daily prayer. He's reminding us through our personal walk with God and through other people praying for you that he wants you to get up and try again. No matter how many times you've messed up, no matter how many times you've failed him, no matter how many times you've neglected him, he's reminding you this morning that he loves you unconditionally. means without condition. And he has an eternal inheritance of kingdom everlasting waiting for you. If the ball's on your court, what's it going to be? Eternal inheritance, eternal life, or eternal condemnation, eternal punishment in hell? What's it going to be? Jesus reminds us loud and clear in today's passage to be overflowing with love and enjoy salvation or be condemned to eternal punishment in hell. Are we going to overflow with love and enjoy salvation? Or are we going to be condemned to eternal punishment in hell because we lack love for anyone else but ourselves? I pray that Grace Fellowship will be a church that is overflowing with the love of Christ. Let's look around. People next to you, people behind you, in front of you. Do you see anyone who is overflowing, exuding with the love of Christ? If not, don't point fingers. Because you're part of it. You're the cause of it as well. So why not, rather than pointing fingers, be the agent of change that Christ desires us to be? Serving and loving on not only the ones who you are comfortable with, hanging out and talking with not only the ones that you feel comfortable with, but even your enemies, even the ones who hurt you, even the marginalized. May we display our love for Christ as we mirror his love towards others. One more encouragement and then we'll close. When you go back and look at all the different works that Jesus mentions in today's passage, if you look with me, 
They're not all that spectacular or flashy, is it? Feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, welcoming strangers. Sure, you can kind of fake that so you can post on your Instagram and get a lot of likes, but they're not all that flashy. They're not all that spectacular. That's, I think, an encouragement for us because Jesus is not asking you to perform miracles. Jesus is not asking you to perform a miracle to turn water into wine or to turn the boy's sack lunch into feeding thousands of people. He's not asking you to change the world by, I don't know, doing something crazy. But what he is asking you is to admit that you're not the hero. He's not asking you to be the hero because he's the ultimate hero. The problem arises because we oftentimes think we're going to be the hero of this life. We often think we have to be the one that changes this world. What Jesus is asking you today is to be his agent of change, who is the ultimate hero. He's not going to give you a task that is too difficult or too impossible for you to manage. Feed the hungry, visit the sick, welcome strangers, serve others help others in need. Anyone can do that, right? Tell me one person who can, who is unable to do that. Whether you're rich or poor, educated or not, men or women, young or old, anyone is able to serve in the capacity that Jesus is allowing us and Jesus is commanding us to serve in. Jesus is not interested in skilled or equipped people. In Christianity, He's not interested in people who are equipped and skilled to serve his kingdom. What he is interested in is people who are willing to serve. The question is, are you willing? The question is, how many of us are willing to serve for the kingdom of God? Not only in the ways that you want to serve in, not only in the ways that you know how to serve, but in the ways that in any and every way possible for the kingdom of God, for his name's sake, I pray I ask you to join me in prayer. Let's pray for our church as well. Uh, let's pray for our church that God will stir up our hearts, that God will wake us up so that we'll be more willing to serve, not only our church, but for His kingdom. We'll be more willing to serve the kingdom of God. If we're not willing to serve, let's pray that God will send more people to our church who will be willing to serve so that we'll be challenged. Oh, that's what it looks like to serve the church. That's what it looks like to serve the kingdom of God. I need to get on that. I believe God will break our church in one way or the other. He will either break us through his word, or he will break us by giving us different circumstances in life, maybe bringing in a wave of other believers in Christ who are very different from us, who we might think, oh, we don't, we got, we don't got much to learn from them. Yet in fact, maybe they are the ones who God is sending to be the agent of change, to stir this pot in this world, in our church, so that we may be rebuked, so that we may be challenged to love and to serve. I pray that we will, as we wait upon Jesus' return, because he will return in glory. He will come to judge. But as we wait upon his return, I pray that we, will ready, we, will too, we too will be ready, we will ready our hearts and prepare ourselves by overflowing with his love, to reach one more person, to impact one more soul, to be an arrow to lead one more individual to the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ.